So if you guys have uh, seen more than a few movies, you'll, you'll recognize kind of a, a somewhat usual opening shot where often, especially if it's kind of a, a big adventure or fantasy movie covering kind of this epic story, you get this wide shot slowly, maybe through the credits, zooms in and narrows in on either the, the place or the person that this film's going to be featuring. And that's a lot um, of what our Bible does. In the very beginning of the Bible, we get this huge wide-angle shot of God creating everything, everyone and everything. And as we move on through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that uh, lens zooms in and narrows its focus on a particular people that God has desired to save, a particular place that he has prepared for them to experience his presence, and a particular promise that he gave to them. And so um, in that, um, we believe that ultimately, um, as as Jim explained, we exist to make disciples of Jesus. And the Bible ultimately focuses in and has the centerpiece and the emphasis on Jesus Christ. And we believe that it's not just when he enters the scene in humanity, in the New Testament, we believe also that first huge chunk of the Bible in the Old Testament is all pointing towards him, whereas the New Testament leads on from him while pointing back. So um, I would give you guys one participatory charge. As we're up here, we're not going to probably be taking questions from you guys because that could go in a lot of different tangents, and we do have five of the largest books of the Bible to cover in under an hour. Um, my charge for you guys would be to put on your thinking caps, be uh, very active listeners, um, because there is a lot of story to go through. There's a lot of narrative from the book of Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. So each of us as elders is going to try to give a clear, around five-minute synopsis of that book. And so as you guys listen, um, try to kind of file that and see the progression of the story as we go. Um, as we talked about in previous weeks, We're preparing to go into the book of Exodus. And so this week and next, it's just going to be a two-part entering Exodus, because we love puns here at Taproot, Um, (laughs) as we try to get our bearings. Um, Exodus is the second of these five books, so it's almost as if you just opened up the book Two Towers and decided, I'm going to read that Lord of the Rings trilogy without having first started with the intro Hobbit and then moved into the trilogy. It can be a little disorienting to just start right in the book of Exodus without a framework and a context, um, seeing the culture behind it and also how the story has led up to the book of Exodus. And so um, that's the purpose of today. Next week, we're going to kind of narrow in further onto the book of Exodus itself and look how it picks up from Genesis and see some of the cultures. Exodus is, at least in the first half, centered in um, the place of Egypt. And so we have Pharaoh and we have Moses leading the Israelites to the Red Sea. Um, it's going to be a selective history as we see. It's not the history of all humanity, but it is the origin of all humanity with a focus, as I said, narrowing in on Egypt. Um, These five books ultimately tell the story of how God draws near to us who continue to rebel and push him away, so to speak. And so the the book is is marked, um, each of the books are marked by their opening statements, um, by and large, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, how the books get their name. And as I open us up in prayer, I'm going to have you guys bring the seats up, so I'm just going to pray for us, and then we will open up with this huge, daunting task of that much of our Bibles in one hour, so I'll pray for us. Father, um, we thank you that you are a God who is actively and continually drawing near to us, that you're a God who desires to bring order in the chaos of our lives, to, to bring um, your law to us so we can know your character in it and through us. And God, we thank you that for those of us in this room that have come to know you, to know your name, to see you personified in in the flesh in Jesus and believed for us, we've experienced your presence. We've experienced your leading and your spirit giving us that law on our hearts. And Lord, we are thankful that you continue to save that your name continues to go forth among the nations. And Lord, as we begin this daunting task of Exodus, some of us have had experience trying to read through the Bible and we get a book or so and we get stuck with cleanliness laws and purity laws and all these things about if you're 
master overturns an ox cart and these things that make no sense to us and they seem so far away from our culture. Um, Lord, as some of us think that it's hard to see the application of the Pentateuch, that it's hard to see where Jesus is the center. Um, Lords, I've been just wading through these books and just seeping um, your word in this. It's, it's more of a problem to, to narrow down the ways that you're, you're seen through that. There's so much depth. Um, so God, I just pray for wisdom for us as elders that we would give um, clear synopses, um, that we would give um, a good, cohesive summary as we all play a part this morning. And, um, and Lord, just give us a, a listening ear. Allow us to hear your spirit through the story of your redemptive work this morning. Amen. So we're going to be going, each of us, through one of the books, and Jim's going to begin um, our time going through the book of Genesis. So Genesis is where everything begins. Now, we see God create the universe, we see God create the earth, we see God create uh, plants and animals and humans. And it's, uh, according to him, <clears throat> everything is good, beautiful, and perfect, including the two humans. And it's a, he creates an ideal order or a place uh, for human flourishing. He just had one simple rule. And to sum that up, it's basically the humans were to look to the Lord for knowledge of good and evil rather than themselves. Well, we also see in Genesis the beginning of brokenness or sin. And we see that beginning with Adam and Eve. Now, they were unique people. They were unique individuals, and they were even different genders. So when they decided, with their limited and finite wisdom, to seek the knowledge of good and evil themselves, that created division. That created guilt and shame, even just between them in the husband-wife relationship. They effectively had replaced one loving God with essentially two finite gods. Now, we see that same division and shame and, and, um, uh, today in all society. This was also the beginning of death, but it's also the beginning of redemption because we see that even though they, they did violate that rule, they weren't terminated immediately. The Lord allowed them to live out their lives. And he even went so far as to kill animals so that they, their, the coats of those animals could be used to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. So you see that beginning of redemption process even, even right there. Now, from here, everything else that begins, uh, there's good in it, but there's also brokenness and death woven into all those beginnings. We see families begin with Adam and Eve and their children, but we also see sibling rivalry, we see jealousy, and murder within the family. We see tribes of humans beginning to collect, but we also see strife that's going on between them. We see culture and diversity beginning, but also with divisions and conflict. And the Lord gets to the point where he says, okay, I need to cleanse things and let, let it start over a bit. So we see that with the flood of Noah. Now, he rescues one family along with the animals, basically to allow the, uh, the humans to reboot. Well, the world begins to unravel again very soon. The waters aren't even quite gone, and things are already unraveling. Uh, now, we also see at this time the beginning of cities, the beginning of nations, we see war between these groups, and we see even an organized religion starting to form. We see one city that builds a tower with the idea that they could reach heaven and they could exalt themselves and their name to the rest of the world. And the Lord intervenes again, again out of his graciousness to prevent that from happening by beginning of the language groups. At this point, Genesis then focuses down on a single family. And this is where the Lord begins with a single individual, namely Abraham, and he makes a covenant or an agreement with Abraham to bless the rest of the world through this man's descendants. And one of those descendants is Jesus Christ himself. So you see, again, this redemptive process beginning in spite of all this brokenness. 
Now we see glimpses of this, of this um, grace in some of the stories about Abraham's family, but we also still see brokenness and sin even within you know, four generations of his family. Now Genesis ends with Abraham's descendants moving to Egypt, and this is the beginning of the Hebrew nation. So again, yet another beginning. And the book of Exodus picks up at this point. And as we go through these books, we're going to have it kind of open for each other, um, unplanned Q&A. So do you guys have any questions for Jim as he gave that synopsis? Jim, why do you need the book of Genesis for your faith? Well, if it wasn't for Genesis, I could think I could handle things on my own. <laughs> but... Um, against overwhelming evidence. And, you know, it's obviously no human being has been able to do that. And Genesis is a great record of, uh, yeah, we just can't do it without that wisdom uh, and knowledge of good and evil has to come from the Lord, from, mm -hmm. from his word. To someone reading the book that maybe is familiar with the Bible just from Sunday school lessons or maybe they don't have any of that context even and they just assume it's another kind of mythological folklore about these great men of old and then they hear you giving a summary of Genesis with and then there's this failure and God gave them this amazing testament to who he was and then they disbelieved there. They were faithless there. Why do you think God had allowed them to get to a place of such faithlessness before he would kind of re-intervene and reveal himself over and over? Well, humans are particular in that they, they don't seem to understand good unless they experience evil mm. and evil ourselves. And, but also see that, that, like I said, we can't fix it ourselves, but God is actively doing that. Mm. So... As he said, um, Exodus picks off from Genesis. You see Abraham, where the nation of Israel started from. Um, he has a son, Isaac, his multiple sons, but the nation comes from Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob, who's renamed Israel, where we get that, that name. And from him comes 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel form that nation that gets enslaved through that same kind of their sin that caused Joseph to get sold into slavery. And yet God, at the end of Genesis, says what they meant for evil, what Joseph's brothers meant for evil and sending him off to be a slave. God turned it around and used it for good. So Exodus picks up um, where there's been 400 years of growth of this nation of Israel in the nation of Egypt. And the Pharaoh at that time in Egypt um, kind of had this almost an anti-God stance where the book of Exodus opens with these statements like they increased and multiplied, fruitful and multiplied, which is kind of an echo of Genesis where God gave this commandment to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted himself to be seen through his people. The book of Exodus starts out with saying God continued to do that in a little bit of a roundabout way in spite of their rebellion and yet Pharaoh wants the opposite. Pharaoh um, lives in fear of that, and so he orders that all the firstborn children of Israel are killed. And from this um, group of, of firstborn babies, um, one of these babies is Moses. And in God's providence, Moses' mother sends him down the Nile um, in, in an act of faith, and Moses is picked up by someone in Pharaoh's household and actually raised in Pharaoh's household and ended up being a leader in that nation. And so um, from that point on, due to a couple different circumstances, Moses ends up um, leaving, fleeing for his life to an, an area called Midian, um, where he ends up getting married and having children. But he's there for 40 years. And we, we see, um, as I was saying, like the, the focus narrows down to this people group, the Israelites, and also to, to Moses. And time also slows, as you see from Genesis on. You get kind of like time goes slower and slower. And with a couple of verses, it says that Moses was there for 40 years as a shepherd before this big story of the Exodus even comes about. And so as, as God's preparing to form Moses as a leader to lead um, the people of Israel 40 years in the wilderness, God's doing this wilderness experience for Moses as well. 
And so kind of after that, that season time, God reveals himself to Moses and, and uses this idea of the name of God, Yahweh, that is revealed to Moses that the people had before but had forgotten um, as they walked in disobedience to the God of Israel. Moses has that name revealed to him again and says, I want to show you what my name means by freeing you from Egypt, from the slavery, from this oppression. And so Pharaoh had kind of become this picture of evil and of sin, of Satan, of, of someone who was wanting to put a burden on the people and, and kind of bring the curse back. And Moses is told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You guys seen the old Charlton Heston movie? You have a little bit of a synopsis of this story because this is where it kind of starts. And as he does that, um, God knows that Pharaoh will not. Pharaoh will have a hard heart. But yet Moses goes and shows through these 10 plagues that God brings on the Egyptians because of their unwillingness to obey God, um, his justice um, against sin and against their beliefs in false gods and yet his redemption ultimately of the people of Israel where Pharaoh eventually after the death, the final plague is the death of all the firstborn in this kind of twist of events where he had ordered the death of the Israelite firstborn. God says, unless you paint the doorways of your home with the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb. Again, more pictures that look forward to Jesus in the New Testament being that sacrifice that covers us and makes us clean Unless that lamb's blood is painted over the doorways, God will pass by through the city and destroy the firstborn. And so this, this happens. The Israelites um, had this big, um, it's called a Passover meal, um, kind of commemorating the Passover. And in that, um, they, are made, they have to make haste. And it's kind of this reenactment that they're told to continue to do every single year to remember how God ultimately delivered them from slavery to freedom this picture of salvation. Um, as they uh, leave and have this midnight exodus, as they are allowed to leave after that final plague, um, you guys probably know the story that God ends up um, parting this Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, and Israelite is able to walk through, and yet God shows his deliverance again for them and destruction of, of his enemies. Um, at that time, um, they are in the wilderness now and they are free from Egypt and yet they still are caused to live in a place of dependence um, on God. Um, they are looking for water, they're looking for bread and God says, I'm gonna give you manna and quail but you have to depend on me. And he starts this thing called the Sabbath where they're, um, they have to wait in dependence. And so um, through that, God is shepherding them through the wilderness, and this is really just the first half of the book of Exodus. The second half goes into detail about the law that God gives them, and we often think of law as just kind of a, maybe a relationship less do and don't, um, kind of a master and a slave kind of relationship, but God is the master of Israel, but it's a relational thing because he is giving his law to his people to show his character and who he is, and so that's summed up as he begins with the Ten Commandments and he meets with Moses on a mountain. And then the rest of the law that's given in the book of Exodus is really kind of an extrapolation from that, an explanation and going into detail on those commandments. Um, and that kind of begins in chapter 19 and goes until chapter 25 where he begins to focus on what's called the tabernacle. They're meant to, they're called and commanded to prepare this place of meeting that God would come and meet them there and there needs to be a priest to intercede for that. And all of these are pictures that we're gonna get into as we move into the book and that you guys are gonna explain a little bit more about temple and, and sacrifices and priests as you guys look at the last three books. But they're all a picture of Jesus. The temple, the land, the priests, the sacrifice, the cleansing, it all points towards Jesus. And so the book um, gives a bunch of the plans for the tabernacle and the priests, and yet we see a lot of what happened in Genesis of all this goodness that God gives is met with rebellion, with failure to obey God's commands and to keep his covenants and God's faithfulness in response to their failure. So the story of the golden calf coming down with the law and just within that short time of getting the law, they've already built a golden calf to worship in the place of their good God. Um, we see this in chapter 33 where Moses comes and shows that he's an intercessor. And God reveals that he is slow to anger. He is rich in mercy. And he begins to show his, his, uh, his character. And so 
The last five chapters focus on the temple being built, and then it ends with this cliffhanger where Moses isn't able to enter that temple, um, which kind of leaves us in this place of what's going to happen and continues on in Leviticus. So how do we, as, um, I don't know, Western um, people interact with um, this idea of wilderness wandering? It's something that I've never personally experienced. What's the significance of um, those things like the plagues and those things like the wilderness wanderings and those things that are so removed from my um, ability to mm-hmm. compare anything to. Yeah. Yeah, most of us haven't spent 40 years in the wilderness, and so it doesn't seem to have a super direct application because most of us won't unless you move to Arizona or something. <laughs> um, but I think, I think the, the core thing with that is, is we look at how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, yeah, um, the author of Hebrews explains that Jesus is our, our rest, our, our promised land, and that we are in this place, in this world, each of us in our lives, in a place of wilderness, where we do, we are forced to depend on God, who brings us our daily bread, and Jesus through the Spirit, that we're forced to rely on God, who, who nourishes us, and, and we're watered by the Word of God, and there's, there's a sense that we are all living, and we go through what would be maybe more visible seasons of wilderness, um, whether you're, you're struggling with persistent um, sin temptation, whether you're going through economic things and fertility, whether you're having strained relationships, there's, there's an aspect where we know we're not where God has us. Like there's an ultimate fulfillment. There is a promised land that, that awaits us um, in that consummation in, in heaven, but we are living in a, in a wilderness at this point. So if I cut the <laughs> cut the book of Exodus out of out of your Bible, mm-hmm. what would you miss? <laughs> well, I mentioned that some of us are confused by books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, we would be a lot more than confused <laughs> if we didn't have the book of Exodus. Um, I mean, Exodus I think really does set out. Um, I think the the, the why. Um, whereas the other books, they, they get into some of the why too, but they focus a lot on kind of how God sets up the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and some of the meaning in that. But ultimately, I, I believe the book of Exodus, um, we're, we're titling this series through Exodus, Redemption Has a Name. And we chose the, the, the idea of name because the rest of the books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, each of those names come from the first sentence of the book. So Genesis says, in the beginning, in the Genesis. You have the same thing, book of Numbers. This is the numbers of the tribes. Exodus is the only exception to that, and whoever decided to give names to this book decided not to call it the book of names because it starts with this idea of names. And I think that the, the centerpiece of the name of God revealing who he is, that he's he is a person. It's not Mr. God. He has a first name, and he's showing us more and more who he is by his law and his character. And if we didn't have that, if we didn't have this idea of God saying why he wanted his name to be known among the nations, why it was important to remember the name of Yahweh and how he brought us out of, of wilderness, um, we would be left with a lot of work in building a tabernacle, a lot of work in doing sacrifices without knowing why God desired that. He wants to reveal himself intimately with us. I became a follower of Christ when I was a junior in high school. And so I read the New Testament, did okay with that. Uh, Read Genesis and Exodus and was doing okay. The second part of Exodus was a bit hard for me. And then I hit this book called Leviticus. And uh, it was became very, very easy for me to go to sleep when I was reading that book. It was just, didn't, I didn't understand things at all. And, uh, maybe I've made some progress uh, <laughs> since then. Leviticus comes from its derivation of a Latin word, uh, and it's basically, the, Leviticus means priestly or priesthood it's, uh, in, in Latin. 
And in the Hebrew text, it's actually not given that name at all. It comes from the very first word in the text called Vayikra. And the idea is that at Mount Sinai, uh, when Israel was camped below that mountain for that year, God spoke to Moses. And I, I really, really like that. That is the name for the book of Leviticus rather than focusing on the, the priesthood so much. And in the book of Leviticus, God speaks to Moses and he says, I very, very much want you and my people to be able to relate to me. But there is a big problem because I am a God who is holy and my holiness is very dangerous for you. But I'm also a God who is good. And so Leviticus helps us work out this, this huge question of how do we relate to a God who is very, very dangerous in his holiness and yet who wants us to be able to relate to him. And the way the book unfolds is that there are three cycles. There's this, when I was reading it the first time around, it just seemed really, really boring uh, ritual. And then it went to this long discussion of priesthood and the duties that priests had to do, and this long discussion of purification, and all of it seemed boring to me. But nowadays when I read it, I read it as God saying, I'm laying out for you, Moses, a way so that my people can relate to me in a covenant, intimate relationship without dying. Because I'm so dangerous that if you, if you violate, if you miss this one, my people will die. And so it helps me a ton to realize that the book of Leviticus is very largely about God in his kind, gracious way leading us to realize that his grace is very demanding. And if we are not careful, we die in his presence. And so maybe one other point about the structure that is, I think is just really cool. Uh, the centerpiece of the book occurs in chapters 16 and 17, and it's all about the Day of Atonement. And I'm not going to take you into all the details of the, of the scapegoat, but the centerpiece of being able to live with a God who is dangerously holy and yet who wants us to be with him is to uh, relish what God has provided in the atoning sacrifice so that people might be in God's presence. Now, why is Leviticus important to me now? I have to make a confession that uh, there is, and I'm not proud of this confession at all, there's something in me that believes that God always grades on a curve. When I was growing up going to school, I, I was very familiar with the curve, and, and God just doesn't grade on a curve. His holiness is higher than that, and yet he wants us to be able to succeed with him, have an intimate relationship. And so this is a book that teaches me that without the ritual that Jesus Christ fulfilled so beautifully, without Jesus being the great high priest that is so carefully articulated in Leviticus, and without the the purification that comes through the, the various sacrifices, I have no way of having a personal relationship and a close relationship with God without dying. And coming back to myself, as I presume on that, I just take it for granted that God not only grades on a curve, but God's nice and not dangerous. And so Leviticus is a battle for me to get my head on straight. Because I've just got too much, I don't know if it's Glenishness or Alaska-ishness or Americanness in me, but I just have a hard time conceiving of God being so holy and dangerous and good at the same time. Those three just don't mix real well for me, so I need this work to get my head on better. I love the language of dangerous and good. But in my own uh, experience, the way my own mind tends to work is I automatically put something like dangerous in the category of bad because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so can you elaborate on what 
um, dig into what, what dangerous and good, maybe if there's a, a good parallel or, or something like that. What do you mean by dangerous and good? That is a nasty question, Mr. Trainer. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can, Will. Uh, but you, you go back, say, to the example of Aaron's sons. They were priests. And they messed up. They got drunk. And they went into the, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And, you know, you might think, golly, these are Aaron's sons. Get, cut them some slack, great on a curve. And they just get toasted. It's, it's like they're, they're dead. And that's an example of danger. Uh, the word, the verb moot, die, occurs a ton of times in Leviticus. And so it's just, maybe the danger piece is, if you're not careful around this holy God, people die. And so that's why all the sacrificial system is trying to provide death that actually meets our needs and allows us to be in a covenantal relationship with the Father. Good question. I don't know if I answered your question very well. I have one more question on that. Um, the book of Hebrews seems to kind of harken a lot back to the book of Leviticus, talking about the different cleanliness rituals, um, even ending with like, our God is a consuming fire. Mm. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that God. But there's also a lot of blood. Um, the, without the shedding of blood, there's no remissions of sin. Um, it's kind of the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews summation of, of this idea in Leviticus. So could you answer the question, why, why so bloody? Is, what's, the, what's the reason? There's a, there's a lot of, there is a lot of death. There's a lot of blood. Why? My answer to your question, Darren, is because God provides us with a faith that is very, very real. Uh, blood is necessary because death has to happen, and blood is bloody. And so those people lived with an earthiness uh, to their faith that we tend to take for granted. We tend to get squeamish. Uh, and so my answer is that it's just flat out real and earthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that had tremendous teaching learning value that's harder for us to pick up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then that uh, leads us into the book of Numbers. And kind of like Glenn said about the, the book of Leviticus, uh, Numbers is an interesting or I guess the, my problem with numbers is it's not a very interesting title for, <laughs> for the book. Um, and the book of numbers gets its, its name in, in that tradition from the census that's, that's taken twice in that, in that book. In, in the, the Hebrew culture, the title was In the Wilderness, and I think that, if you read the book and then hold those two titles up, I think that maybe In the Wilderness provides a better lens to view what's happening uh, in, in this book here. So um, in the book of Numbers, it's the story of Israel's journey. It starts at Sinai, at the mountain where they, where they receive the law and all these great things. And then there's a section, kind of section two would be this wilderness journey um, into a place called Paran, and then another wilderness journey all the way over to Moab, and they're um, kind of on the cusp. They're, they're just about to get to go to the promised land uh, kind of, of thing is, is where the book leaves us. And if we, if we take this lens of it's a book of journey rather than a book about two censuses, um, we, we start to see um, 
Israel, God's, God's people whom he, he created, who he sustains, who he draws out of one family of the whole earth, who he, he puts, in Israel, or puts in Egypt on purpose, redeems them from slavery, protecting, 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 providing all these miracles, the plagues, keeping them safe, parting, parting the Red Sea, all of these things, giving them the law, revealing the God of the universe reveals his first name to a, a group of desert people, mm-hmm. to a, a group of, of, of people who are just coming out of oppression and slavery. They're, um, they're a nothing among these other nations. And yet God says, this is my first name. This is, this is who I am. And yet these people all through this wilderness journey rebel and they complain and they say god you're you're not good anymore we need to go back to slavery in egypt we need to go back to what this was um and so to uh, i'm gonna highlight two stories from the from the book of numbers one is there's a judgment that comes on the people for snakes um, come and bite. Venomous snakes start biting everyone. And God prescribes a cure for this judgment. He says, make a, make a bronze or make a metal snake, put it on a, on a staff, put it on a, on, a, on a pole, and lift it up. And whoever looks at the snake will, will be healed. And what we see there is, I'm sure a lot more than what I'm going to draw out of it, but we see a judgment of God. Um, and then God says, look at the representative of that judgment. Look at the form of judgment for its healing. And then Jesus picks up on this idea and says, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and I'll draw all men unto myself. So I'll, I'll be lifted up, and whoever will look at God's judgment on sin will be saved from God's judgment on sin. And so God sets up this, this beautiful way in which he, he commands the people to look at both justice and mercy. And God refuses through this book to separate the two into different categories. He is always and forever both just and gracious at the same time. And you see this as these people wander through, wander through, and constantly be like, yeah, we know you fed us manna and quail. We know that when we were thirsty, you, you brought water out of a rock for us. We know that you defeated what seems to be the biggest, baddest army of its day, like it was nothing. But we want to rebel. We're going to make a choice to go and do this. And God, in his justice... Um, Gives, gives an appropriate response to those things and in his grace never turns from blessing and keeping and providing for uh, this, this nation. So the other story that I want to highlight is they, uh, they're in this valley and I think it is the king of Moab hires this weird character in the Bible named Balaam. And we see Balaam all the time in our little like flannel graph things. It's kind of like a chubby guy with a coat and a staff. He's a pagan sorcerer. And from what I can tell, if the king of Moab is hiring him, he's one of the best in the world. So a king of a nation hires a guy by name. This guy is not to be messed with. This is a real bad dude. He says, okay, Balaam. Will you please stand up here and curse these people because I'm scared of them. I don't want to deal with them. I don't want them to be a threat to my land. And we get to see both sides of this exchange. We see Moab on this rock trying to curse Israel. And we see Israel in this valley currently denying God. Currently rebelling. Currently saying you know, it'd be better for us to be enslaved to Egypt rather than in relationship with Yahweh. And so if I were, if I were Yahweh, I would have let Balaam curse him. It seemed like they deserved that. But yet, he, God gives a, a promise to Abraham 
that he's going to keep these people. He's, he's going to make a nation. He's going to be their protection. And, and then he reveals himself relationally to these people and says, I will not turn from blessing you. And so in the midst of Israel's rebellion, Balaam cannot curse them. He, he cannot utter a single curse against the people of Israel, but yet blesses them. And this is showing Yahweh, Yahweh is bigger than the biggest, baddest dude we can think of. In, in, in the world that Israel's in, Balaam was probably one of the top three bad guys, as far as I can tell. If I'm a king, I'm going to hire one of the best. And yet, Balaam, this pagan sorcerer, is 100% subservient to the will of Yahweh for his people. And so, I don't know, I, I kind of see numbers as uh, w- Israel's wandering through the wilderness and rebelling and, and just going against God and God's justice in response to that, but his grace in never, ever, ever turning from blessing and providing for his people. Any, any questions? So, similar question. If I cut that out of the, the book of Numbers out of your Bible. Yeah. We're not going to let you cut anything, Jim. Yeah, not asking. <laughs> what would that do with your walk with the Lord? So if I come out of Leviticus and I see this God who is very dangerous and, and good, but, but dangerous, and I, and I take an honest look at the mirror in myself, I would be very scared that he would turn from blessing me. I'd be very scared that he would turn his back on me. Because um, if, there's, if there's one guy who would accomplish it, I feel like I'm that guy. Um, and, and so it, it shows for me God's, uh, when I experience God's justice against my sin, when I experience God's justice against my bad choices, my, um, th- those types of things, I cannot remove it from his grace. I can't say God has turned from blessing me to, to correct me if I have this book. I can only say God is correcting me because he loves me. So just to follow up with that, you speak in the present tense. This is not something that just happened someday in the past when you first met Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need that principle that you get out here today. Is that correct? Very much so. This week much so. <laughs> yeah. So with that idea that... Um, God would not allow Balaam to curse his people. Even though they were curse-worthy, even though they had continued from biting of the fruit that brought the curse to perpetuating disobedience that would further the curse, yet he protected his people from that. How does Jesus in the New Testament, um, how do those two things connect? How did Jesus connect with the curse? The idea of the cursed serpent being held up, the idea of guarding from a curse. What is Jesus and the curse? Where do they intersect? So I think this idea of um, the the curse of disobedience to the law, the curse of our own inability to fulfill Leviticus, um, its righteous judgment is death and separation. And like, um, like in Numbers where God judges the people and, and puts serpents on the ground and, and the, you can't read what they've done and say the Israelites that were bitten were unjustly bitten. Um, it's, a, it's a just move. It's a hard move. It's, it should make us sad. It should make us cringe, but it is just. And then they look to a symbol of that judgment, just like when I, um, if I were in the, the courtroom, kind of to make, make it more Pauline, if I were in the courtroom of my own um, life's review, I, I can't make a case for being 
not being curse worthy. I can't make a legitimate case for, yeah, I'm, I'm good enough. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not even good enough to get on the curve. Um, and yet God says, I know. And so I'm going to pour out curse and judgment and wrath against the, the perfect holy Jesus in your place. Um, so that then we look to that symbol of judgment as a place of, one, remembering, but two, hope and joy, which seems insane to look at a, a method of torture and execution as a symbol of joy. Um, but that's one of those insane, crazy, weird things that the gospel does. Last but not least, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a Greek word, which means second law, deuteronomos, second law. And uh, if you're going to read it through the Hebrew lens, the, inter the, first, the name of the book is, these are the words. And it's a repeat in many, many ways of much that has already been covered in the first four books of the Pentateuch. And uh, you might remember that Israel crossed the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and there was this gigantic miracle, and then they headed south, most people think anyway, to Mount Sinai, and they camped there for a year, and that's where God gave Moses the law, that's where the, the requirements and the stipulations for building the tabernacle were given, and a whole bunch of, of law was given. Then after a year or so of camp being camped out at Mount Sinai, then the people, God's people headed north and God led the people or the people chose to send out the spies. They went to take a look at the land. They said, hey, it's a really cool place, but they're big, what do you say, bad people? Yeah, bad, Down. bad dudes. Bad dudes. And so God's people became afraid. They were more afraid of the bad dudes than they were of God. And uh, they, they chickened out. And God said, okay, then you get to go back into the wilderness and you get to spend 40 years uh, getting well acquainted with snakes and things like that. And the whole generation is going to die. And now the book of Deuteronomy comes. These are the words that Moses said. What I'd like to encourage you to do is think of Deuteronomy as the world's longest pep talk. Okay. <laughs> Because it's just on the eve of crossing the Jordan River. It's just on the eve of going into the enemy territory where God's people are supposed to possess the land. And yet, God says, I want you to look back upon your whole experience. And so you, Moses runs the people through 11 chapters of their story. And in that story, uh, as Will very capably pointed out, Moses traces the murmuring, chases, traces the griping, the sinning, and he shows in, with clarity that God's people do not deserve to be in the covenant because they have consistently broken the covenant. And yet at the same time, God graciously provides power, salvation, deliverance, provision, and so the intent of these 11 chapters is know your story very well because you've got to know yourself if you're going to love God. But also know your story well because you've got to know God if you're going to know yourself. That's the kind of the, the thrust of the first 11 chapters. And then there's a whole smear of chapters of law that can send us right back to sleep again. And I'm not going to give you a lot of, of detail about those laws right now. But what I do want to do is, is share with you that the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses, an old, powerful, strong, vital man, up on the mountain, receiving this information from God, comes back down. Hey, hey, let's go right to the banks of the River Jordan. Let me speak this message to you. And the final section is Moses saying, I set before you the blessings and the cursings. Traces right back to the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And he says, please, 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 remember the great hero Israel, of Deuteronomy 6, here. 
You don't hear without loving, and you don't love without obeying. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. And in this great pep talk, Moses says, if you cross that river, you will only be able to survive. You will only be able to succeed if you reestablish your covenant with God. So Deuteronomy is a great big covenant renewal message, a great big covenant renewal pep talk, so that God's people will cross the river, go into enemy territory, and not fear, and obey, and listen, and go up against gigantic enemies in the name of the Father. And at the, just the very, very end, Moses, very confident that God's people won't be able to ultimately listen and love and obey, he points them towards a greater covenant to come, the new covenant. And then, weirdest of all weirdnesses, God says to Moses, you do not get to cross the Jordan. You have been my man, you must die. You will die right along with your people. And then the text says that as Moses died, God buries him. God loved Moses. And in the second giving of the law, this pep talk, it has this wonderful function. Remember your story. Obey God, love him, and step into the blessings and the cursings and choose life. May God bless us. Any questions that I don't have answers for? <laughs> so if Deuteronomy is here... <clears throat> <laughs> no, you're not going to cut it out, but if Deuteronomy is a repeat, why do you need the repeat? Because we have lots and lots of Jordan River experiences, lots of times when it's a new juncture, it's a new beginning, and we have the opportunity to cross that river and step into a new land. And we need this pep talk, this revisiting of all of this so that we'll go into the land. Uh, from the voice of a, of a marriage counselor. Lots and lots of people who are in deep weeds. And they need to, they want to restore, renew their relationship. And we need Deuteronomy. Anytime it's up for renewal and restoration. <laughs>